Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Hello, welcome to the Border Chronicle. Uh, please excuse my voice. It looks like I have a little bit of a cold, but that doesn't matter because today we have Erica Pinheiro from the organization Al Otro Lado. Al Otro Lado is an organization that provides legal and humanitarian support, as well as policy advocacy and impact litigation for refugees, deportees, and other migrants um, along the Tijuana-United States border. Um, We start the interview today when Erica crossed the border in January of 2019, and much to her surprise, she was detained by Mexican officials. And she found out there was an alert placed on her passport. And later she found out that she was on a watch list compiled by officials of the U.S. government, particularly the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. In the interview, Erica gives an insightful analysis of what is going on on the border from the transition from Trump to the Biden administration. So please do listen. Thank you. I wanted to start in a particular place because um, I think it's indicative of of what you do and, and um, how it's maybe viewed from the state and outside forces, right? And um, um, I believe it was in, in 2019 that you were crossing the border and something happened, right? You you weren't allowed entry into Mexico. Right. Could you um, just start a conversation and just explain what happened? And then, then if you know, give the context around that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it's important to know what I was doing, um, <laughs> where I was going when I was crossing. So um, it was like end of 2018, beginning of 2019, we were working to reunify families that had been separated under zero tolerance. Um, in When AMLO came into office in December of 2018. Uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, right? Yes. So he kind of opened the, the southern border of Mexico and was giving out humanitarian visas and just had generally a more liberal policy toward immigrants in the beginning, right, at first. And so we were working with Mexican immigration authorities to get separated parents who had been separated at the border and deported without their kids um, from Central America, get them legal travel through Mexico to present themselves at the U.S. border. So the day, I will never forget the day that I was crossing the border. It was January 29th of 2019. Um, That day, basically, we were working with a group of parents who were waiting at the southern border of Mexico for me to travel down and help them cross into Mexico so that we could get them through the country and reunified with their kids. Can I ask you a question? By we, you mean al otro lado? Yes. So, um, and I had a, vi- a business visa in Mexico and I needed to renew it because you need, a, you know, certain visa to travel um, to the south. It's kind of different from just traveling the la- or crossing the land border. Um, and I remember thinking um, it was the first day of MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocols, the first day it had rolled out and Kirsten Nielsen happened to be 
at the border. So I was like, mm. <laughs> Nielsen was a secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. at the time. Exactly. So it already felt like when I was going to renew my visa, I already was like, maybe something could go wrong today because it just felt heavy. Right. So um, I had crossed that morning. I went to work in San Diego. I came back and I parked my car on the Mexican side of the border and just walked into the United States and CBP was like, what are you doing? You already crossed today basically. And I'm like, oh, I'm just renewing my visa. Cause you have to kind of be entering Mexico to renew the visa. So I walked, kind of just walked through the port of entry, turned around, walked back into Mexico. And um, I explained like, I have a business visa, you know, I'm renewing it. I'm traveling to Southern Mexico, et cetera. And they were like, great, no problem. Paid the fee, they issued the visa, they put it in my passport. And then the last step is they uh, stamp and swipe the passport. So that all happened and I'm just walking back to my car and they were like, wait a minute, there's a problem. The Mexican immigration authorities. And they were like, um, just come wait in this room for a few minutes. It's probably nothing, uh, just be 15 minutes. So I was like, all right. So I just went in, um, sat down, 15 minutes turned to 30, turned to an hour and I'm asking questions like what's happening. And they were like, um, we have to call Mexico City and get some information. There's something strange. There's an alert on your passport. Um, and I started asking questions and they told me that they didn't know the nature of the alert because it had been placed by a foreign government and they didn't have access to um, the reasons why it had been placed on me. And so then um, I was put into, well, I guess before that I asked to go to the bathroom and I realized things were getting serious when a woman with a gun followed me in. Uh, one of the officers and waited in the bathroom with me until I was finished. So then I knew it was, uh, you know, more serious than than just a kind of secondary inspection. So I went back into the, these offices they had and they brought me into a side room and they interrogated me. They asked me if I had ever had weapons training, if I um, had any connection to criminal groups, why I was in Mexico. It was like pages of questions. And so I answered them. Um, they let me keep my phone the whole time. So I was like calling my lawyers in Mexico. They only let the attorney see me for a few seconds. Um, and so hours went on, right? I kept asking for more information. Um, eventually an officer came in and he asked me if I had, um, a warrant for my arrest in the United States. And I said, no. And he said, this type of alert is only for people who have a warrant or are designated as national security risks. And so they said because of that, they couldn't allow me to enter Mexico. So my 10-month-old son was in Mexico. My car was in Mexico. My house is in Mexico. So I uh, made a scene. <laughs> was, you know, uh, I had to be physically taken out of the port of entry and was um, handed over to CBP. They didn't ask me any questions. They just kept me there for a few minutes and let me go. Um, and I immediately re-entered Mexico through the car lanes to get my son. You were able to do that? There's no uh, immigration checkpoint, so maybe it wasn't. Technically, I shouldn't have been able to, but I wasn't going to leave my child by himself in Mexico. He's an infant. So I re-entered the U.S. a few days later. Um they didn't, CBP didn't ask me any questions. And eventually I got a visa and was able to come back. But um, a few days, actually, while I was still waiting in Mexico to go back to the US, um, an ICE agent leaked the fact that I was part of a watch list, 
right, that myself and maybe 40-something other attorneys, journalists, activists had been placed on a watch list by CBP. Um, many of us had alerts placed on our passports. And um, yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. And this group of 40 people who, like, what were they doing? Were they were they working then the same sort of things you were working on? Did it seem to be targeted? Yeah, so in November of 2018, that was when the big caravan came through. I'm sure many of the listeners remember Trump tweeting about it and characterizing it as an invasion. And I had been in Tijuana for years at that point and had seen other caravans come through. Um, usually there were you know, more than a few hundred people, and this one was you know, thousands of people. So it was a very intense time in Tijuana. There were a lot of humanitarian and legal needs. Um, there were also a lot of press here. So most of the people on the watch list had some kind of connection to the caravan, mostly um, attorneys helping to provide legal information, journalists covering the caravan. Um, there were some activists who had traveled with the caravan or were trying to organize to make sure that the caravan members had access to the U.S. asylum system. So that was really the common thread with everyone. What what kind of work were you doing with the caravan? Well, I think in my case, um, I, I know I always, when the caravans come through, give legal orientations, like just tell people what their rights are under U.S. asylum law. And we do that for all migrants in Tijuana, whether or not they travel in a caravan, right? So that was just business as usual. It just was more intense. Um, but I was actually really focused on the family reunification. I think what flagged me was I went to Central America in October of 2018 to actually interview the parents who had been separated under zero tolerance Um to submit petitions for their return under the Miss L litigation, which was the ACLU suit that challenged the family separation policy. So I um, had traveled to Central America. Several members of our staff had done the same. We'd gone to um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So um, when I eventually looked through the discovery of the case and just seeing why they had targeted me, that was definitely my travels to Central America while the caravan was leaving were definitely you know, featured prominently. Um, what did they say about it? Were they, did they treat your travels to Central America suspiciously? Is that They never said anything. I mean, the day, it was like a day or two after I had been removed from Mexico, my co-director, Nora Phillips, was um, detained at the airport in Guadalajara. Um, she was held there for like nine or 12 hours with her seven-year-old. And basically deported back to Los Angeles. Now, Nora had like never been to Central America. She'd never, she hadn't been to the border to work with the caravan. Um, she's just our co-director. She lives in Los Angeles. And so, you know, that's when we knew it was political, right? Because initially the government denied, they were like, well, maybe it was just the Mexican authorities and, you know, maybe your immigration status wasn't right. Like they really tried to deflect and deny any responsibility for the alert until the story was leaked to NBC showing, you know, the actual watch list that CBP had put together. Yeah. So, so I imagine that all the people on the watch list had very similar experiences, like being detained, being interrogated, secondary inspection, that sort of thing. So there were people who got 
detained by CBP, right? Like there were a few people who were like shackled to a bench for six hours, like, you know, asked a bunch of questions about the caravan. So that was a little bit of a different issue. Um, basically in our cases, the U.S. government asked the Mexican government to do the same to us, right? But it gave them sort of plausible deniability because they're like, well, that's the Mexican government, that's not us. Um, but then of course it came out that CBP had placed the alerts and asked the Mexican government to do this to us. But this is a common tactic that the U.S. government uses. You know, they will get Mexico to stop migrants or, you know, persecute people who are helping migrants, et cetera, and then they can kind of wash their hands of it and just blame the Mexican government. Um, but I would say, um, you know, for people who actually traveled with the caravan, they were more likely to suffer interrogations by CBP. A lot of people got their sentry or global entry taken away. Um, you know, and just in the case of having the alerts on our passports, it was maddening because I wasn't sure if it was Interpol alert or like really what alert system was being used. And since that's happened, I haven't traveled outside of the U.S. or Mexico because I'm not sure if I will be detained and deported in another country and sent back to the United States. Yeah, I guess that's a, a might be a, a risk, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we found out is... Um, you know, the alert system is internal to Mexico, at least the one that they used with us. But we've seen other cases where um, people who've had these types of alerts placed on them are deported from third countries. So it's definitely a way to restrict our movement. Um, and because it's so secretive and the U.S. government kind of washes their hands of it, um, you know, at this point, they're kind of like, well, now it's in Mexico's hands, right? So I'm not like 100% sure that the alert is cleared. <laughs> um, it seems like it is. But yeah, I mean, we'll see when I try to travel outside of the US or Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the work of Al Lalo on what you're doing at that time? and what you're doing now. Sure. So um, Al Otro Lado is a binational nonprofit, mostly focused on legal services, but it's we have a holistic approach. So we have a lot of humanitarian services as well, because we realize, especially for our clients stuck at the border, the legal assistance isn't worth much if they can't survive to make it to their court hearing, right? So especially now with the border closures, um, our work has shifted to be much more humanitarian. Um, but Al Otro Lado started about 10 years ago as an all-volunteer organization. And so, um, you know, we'd have a couple dozen attorneys come down to the border every few months and just do these massive clinics with refugees and deportees. And with respect to refugees, we would just tell them, like, walk to the border, walk to the port of entry, tell them you're afraid and you will be processed for asylum. And that was what happened up until basically 2016. So there was, like kind of the first iteration of what we call metering or turnbacks with the Haitian population. We had a big surge of Haitians in 2016 and there was like, CBP made a line essentially. Like they weren't just processing people on arrival, but that lasted for a short time and then was over. But the huge change came in November of 2016 when Trump was elected president, not even inaugurated. So CBP, as soon as he was elected, stopped processing asylum seekers at the ports of entry. They told people there's no more asylum. Um, you know, they would physically remove people from the port of entry. It was a huge shift. And so at that time, my co-director, Nicole Ramos, was living in Tijuana. 
she started accompanying people to the port of entry to document the turnbacks. And I think by the time she accompanied about 500 people, we were like, all right, we got to do something here. Um, we started planning a class action lawsuit to challenge turnbacks, but realized um, that takes a lot of time. And so we all quit our other jobs and kind of came into Al Otro Lado as staff, unpaid at the time, but we worked really hard to file our first class action in July of 2017. And since then we've grown to like 45 people and three offices in two countries. Um, we have remote assistance for migrants all along the US-Mexico border. Um, we're the biggest, well, we have the biggest number of clients who were deported without their kids during zero tolerance. So we have a big group of um, parents in Central America that we're still trying to reunify with their families. And we do a lot of just humanitarian work on the border. And we um, also focus on folks in detention in the United States. So it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and really impressive. Uh, you know, everyone quitting their jobs and going for it. Thankfully, it worked out. <laughs> Could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I bet it was nerve wracking, a little nerve wracking at the time. Yeah, it was worth it, though. Could you um, like just there's so many stories, right? But is there are there any stories that that really strike you. Um, I'm curious too. I'm curious too. Uh, what what sort of stories are you hearing now that you have a new administration, the Joe Biden administration? Yeah. So, just to give you a sense of the volume of people that we're seeing, in 2021 we saw over 10,000 asylum seekers, or spoke to over 10,000 asylum seekers. A lot of them virtually, but um, we also go around to shelters. So you know, we hear a lot of. I always, you know, you have to have a dark sense of humor with this work, but I've always tell people when they're coming into it, I'm like, get ready to hear the worst thing you've ever heard in your entire life all day, every day. Like that's, you know, so there's so many stories I can say that have touched me or that I remember. Um, but I think there's a couple that really stand out to me. So just with respect to the families that were being separated most of our clients were indigenous and it really struck me because in working with them, it wasn't immediately clear how we would articulate an asylum claim because people, the indigenous people were so used to being persecuted in their home countries that they saw a lot of those things as normal. And also there's a trust barrier, right? So like, um, they weren't willing to just immediately share every traumatic memory with us. But, you know, there were a number of parents that we worked with during that first set of parents, you know, 2018, 2019, who were environmental activists. You know, they were protecting their um, ancestral lands from mining operations or um, mostly mining, mostly Canadian mining companies going into Guatemala. Um, so those, we heard these stories over and over again, but it was interesting to me how, um, the indigenous parents didn't even think of that as abnormal, right? That's just the reality they had been living in. And that was coupled with their inability to provide for their families through subsistence farming because of the catastrophic droughts, right? So a lot of them lived in what's known as the dry corridor. So it was, you know, eventually like all of them passed their credible fear interviews. And, you know, now it's like we're in a different posture now in terms of them moving forward with asylum, um, but I think to a lot of people, when you think about why these people are migrating, the first thing they're going to tell you is like, I couldn't feed my family because the crops dried out. Right. Um, 
and they wanted to give better opportunities for their children. But when you really look behind it, like, yeah, there's reasons why they were able to access the asylum system because some of that could count as persecution under U.S. law. But it really showed me how limited U.S. law is in terms of providing protection to those kinds of migrants. Um, and right now, I would say the two biggest populations that kind of stand out to me, one is like obviously the Haitian population. Um, what is happening to Haitians throughout Mexico and at the border is like a human rights travesty. I mean, it's something that is it's just unbelievable to me, especially when we contrast it with how this administration is talking about Ukraine right now and and what you know how they're just indiscriminately sending Haitians back to Haiti. I saw a statistic by our friends at Witness um Witness at the border and they were saying that one in every 560 people in Haiti has been expelled from the United States. I mean that's just mind-blowing to me, right? And these people are given zero screening. Look at what's happening in Haiti right now and they're not even given any opportunity for protection in the United States. Um, so that's one. And the other really is Mexican people because people really ignore that there is an armed conflict in Mexico. There's thousands of displaced people, um, you know, thousands of mass clandestine graves here. Um, about 30 to 40 percent of the refugees that we're seeing at the border are actually from Mexico. And I would say they have the least chance of gaining any type of protection in the United States. So um, you know, of the individual stories I could tell you, I mean, you know, there's so many from, from the Mexican people, but I just see them as kind of uniquely disadvantaged um, in this whole situation with all the border closures. I travel quite a bit to Nogales, and I've noticed that too when, I've, when I'm talking to people on, on the Mexican side of the border. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Mexicans living kind of in limbo and on the on the border, but from places like Guerrero and places in the south of Mexico. Is that is that similar to what you're? Yeah, I mean, there's entire towns that have left Michoacan or Guerrero. Um, there's the same sort of like resource extraction issues happening in indigenous communities in Chiapas, for example. So we're seeing all kinds of migration. Are you hearing, as far as resource extraction is concerned, is it similar to the mining companies or is it a variety of things that you're hearing? It's a variety of things. There's a lot of issues with um, water and especially within Mexico, you know, we all have to buy our drinking water and a lot of those companies will take from indigenous water sources, leaving the community with, you know, little water to themselves or they're charging people for access to their own water. So um, we hear things like that, but I would say the main driver is cartel violence in Guerrero or Michoacan. Um, and of course, here in Tijuana, you know, every year is more violent than the last. So it's, you know, people have a difficult time finding safety within Mexico and of course don't have access to the U.S. asylum system. And could you talk a little bit about the Biden administration has been in office for a year. What kind of changes have you seen what kind of similarities have you seen between the past Trump administration with the Biden administration? When Biden was elected, I never thought I would be saying a year later that things are worse at the border now than they were under the Trump administration. When Biden was elected, I worked with the transition team on immigration issues. Um, we formed regional task forces along the border. So I'm one of the facilitators of the California um, Welcoming Task Force. And then there's four others, I think, um, Arizona, and then three in Texas, right? Um, 
And so the idea at the beginning was we were working together to reopen the asylum system. I'm sure you've heard the safe, orderly, humane rhetoric from the Biden administration. You know, that was the goal. Um, we, we all thought Title 42 was going to end within weeks, and we were building capacity on both sides of the border to safely process people, um, especially given COVID concerns. So it was very quickly apparent that we were not on the same page. I would say after the first few months, all of the advocates that had gone into the administration started quitting. And then we saw the Biden administration really supercharge the use of Title 42. So, you know, under the Trump administration, um, basically Border Patrol would just push people back into Mexico. There weren't really expulsion flights except to the interior of Mexico. And that was the big shift with Biden. They started expelling people, like, for example, Haitians back to their home countries by the thousands. Um, they were sending all nationalities to Guatemala or southern Mexico. Um, now there's expulsion flights to Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Central America. And that, that was, like, those expulsion flights did not exist? No. Under the Trump administration, No. Are they a part of Title 42? Are they? Are... Yeah, so they have the expulsion flights under Title 42, which means like people aren't generally even asked if they have a fear of return. Um, but there's something even more insidious happening right now. So um, in 2019, the Trump administration signed biometric information sharing agreements with um, a few countries, but specifically it's the Northern Triangle countries in Central America. And recently, the Biden administration started effectuating what they call document-free removals based on facial recognition or other biometric markers that, you know, are shared with the Central American countries through these agreements. And so it's really difficult to parse from the statistics that are being provided how many people this is happening to, but it's obviously alarming just given you know the error rates the false positives that we see with facial recognition technology um, the lack of due process for someone who's like not even being verified as a citizen of those countries with documentation um, and just the rate at which folks are being sent back to their home countries without any access to the U.S. asylum system so to me like those kinds of agreements and the secrecy with which these things are being carried out is much more insidious um, and has like more um, alarming implications for the long term. Yeah. Could you explain how that works? Like if somebody is, say, arrested by CBP or Border Patrol coming over the U.S. border, would they be then processed and then their pictures taken and that would go in the facial re recognition database? And then via these these agreements, it's shared with other countries or vice versa? Or how does that work exactly? I am not like you know, operationalizing these agreements. So this is just my understanding of how it works. So, you know, when you get your driver's license in El Salvador, let's just use an example, like they take your picture, right? Maybe they take your fingerprints or um, when you get a national ID card, right? They kind of will collect certain biometrics from you. Um, that information is basically shared with the U.S. government. So they can use biometric markers to, you know, quote unquote, verify identity. Um, so I know they've operationalized these agreements to effectuate these document free removals and basically like speeds up the removal process. So they don't have to do that consular verification of documents, right? It's just like match the biometric database, remove people to home country. Um, so I think that's pretty much how it's working. The way I see it being more insidious is how, because DHS is like 
setting up biometric collection in Panama. Like that's already set up, right? When people come through the Darien Gap, even now Colombia, right? They're they're doing these bilateral agreements with these countries and basically saying like, give us the biometric information and we will provide you know, funding or technical support for you to secure your border. And so now it's like, for example, Africans coming through South America, coming through the Darien Gap, it's like their biometrics are taken at every turn. And so if we're going toward a future of document-free removal, like just think of the implications of that, right? And and just the speed at which it's carried out, the lack of due process, all of that is just very alarming to me. Yeah, that's uh, it's hard to even comprehend, right? You know that you're you're, discuss- you're discussing a border that's much more vast than what we have just on the U.S. Mexico border, and the kind of tentacles that go thousands of miles away. Um, do you have any other insights of any places of hope or places that you might see there might be a possibility of improvement? I'm probably the wrong person to ask about possibilities of hope. (laughs) I'm like, there's no hope. Um, What I've seen is um, really like a wholesale shift to the right in terms of the rhetoric around the border. And I think this is for a few reasons. One, um, you know, the Trump administration sort of moved the goalposts. And so a lot of the work that we did was so reactive and I really expected with the Biden administration that we would be more proactive and actually building something that works instead of constantly just reacting to policies that hurt people. Um, unfortunately, you know, that wasn't the case. Um, but you know, DHS is still DHS. It's the same people who separated families, right? Um, the border patrol union is insanely politicized and the Republican party is now, I would say it's inciting violence against people who look like immigrants. When I hear the rhetoric around like the border invasion and open borders and, you know, that Biden's letting migrants stream in, it could not be further from the truth. I mean, really, um, they've weaponized Title 42 to a greater extent than the Trump administration ever did. I mean, during the Trump administration, people were being processed for asylum um, until Title 42 was implemented. But um you know, we haven't seen that really under the Biden administration to the same extent that we did before. And I think people also forget that, like, before Trump was elected, people could just be processed at the border. You know, they could just walk right up to the border and be processed for asylum. That is the law. And it's still the law. Um, but I think the other thing that's really disappointing for me is, like, a lot of people on the left or center or people who you know, voted for Joe Biden, they think all the border problems are solved now, right? So most people, I think, are not paying attention at all. And the Biden administration has been savvy to do kind of performative pro-immigrant things, like to make people, all they see is like, oh, there's a there's a family reunification task force that's over. Well, there's still 1,200 families separated. They haven't reunified that many yet, right? Um, same thing with the MPP wind down. So the first six months of the Biden administration before Texas sued to re-implement um, MPP or remain in Mexico, they processed um, about 13,000 migrants out of MPP who had been in Mexico mostly for like a year or two, but at the same time expelled, I think, around a million people under Title 42. So it's like people pay attention to the 13,000, but kind of forget of the million people who were expelled at the same time, right? So they've kind of like done this 
sort of bait and switch with the public where, you know, Democrats aren't paying attention or, you know, a lot of leftist people, I would say, are not paying attention, which makes it really difficult for us here because it's like, you know, the conditions on the border are the worst I've ever seen since I've been here. Um, you know, the access to the asylum system is more restricted than I've ever seen, but we don't have the same, you know, public outcry as we did during family separation. The way the media covered 2018, you know, the family separation, zero tolerance. And I remember there was all the media outlets were on the border and now it's, you don't have the same sort of coverage. And for some things to change, like you just said, do you think a similar sort of public outcry is what is needed or at least would help? And what, how would that happen if, if there's no media coverage of what's going on? Well, there is media coverage. It's just right-wing media coverage. And so it's there is public outcry, but it's from the right. And it's people who want to come to the border with guns and shoot at people crossing illegally, right? So that's the frightening part. Um, but I honestly feel that we have entered kind of a new phase of public understanding of the border, mostly due to the COVID pandemic. I think that people, one, are just like, exhausted of about suffering like people are suffering themselves they have a lot on their plates um you know when we talk about camps at the border there's homeless camps in the united states too like i see it i i remember one day crossing the border um and there was you know now it's gone but there was a huge migrant encampment on the tijuana side and as soon as i crossed there was a huge homeless encampment like right on the side of the freeway and i'm like wow these are all these camps right like it's just yeah it's hard for people i think to absorb stories of more suffering or like if they're not getting resources that they need it's hard for people to conceptualize like oh we should open the borders and help refugees with resources that aren't even coming to me like I think that there's been a a shift but there's also been this like hardening military it's militarization of the border um, that is seen as legitimate under the Biden administration because it's a lot of this like smart border technology. It's not necessarily the physical wall, which is something, you know, people can kind of see as like, oh, that's wrong to put a wall or, you know, it's Trump's thing. Like we'll be against it. Now it's like the facial recognition cameras, the sensors, the robot dogs, which I really thought people would <laughs> be more angry about, but you know, they weren't. Um, and it's just seen as like, a smart way to deploy resources to the border. It's legitimized by the Democratic Party. Um, and it's part of a, you know, a global trend toward hardening, you know, the first world borders against people who are fleeing climate change or the pandemic or violence or whatever. So um, I just think, you know, most people understand now that the wall and all of the smart border technology is there to keep people from accessing the resources of the first world. And I think people who are on the right side of the border are generally okay with it. That's what I've seen. And it's really sad because I I think most of them don't understand how, you know, the people who are fleeing all of these catastrophes don't even have basic dignity when they're in these circumstances of fleeing. Right. And it's like the fact that folks think they deserve dignity by virtue of where they're born and others do not is, is sad, but I don't, see that changing anytime soon well th- thanks for your <laughs> um no no that's it's really important to hear that perspective and and maybe that's the kind of perspective that is needed to to um get through the kind of psychological walls or whatever you know those those sorts of walls that 
might be around people and their thoughts about what is really going on on the border. So I really appreciate you coming on again, Erica. Thank you so much again. All right. Thank you. Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.